0: Good evening, Goodbye Forever by Natchang Rimshe Volume 2. Chapter 10 Ocean of Space The initial training in iconographic drawing continued. Sherab Palden Beru began to give me a great deal of information and I wrote it all down in my notebook. Before beginning to draw, the first necessity was to determine the vertical axis. This is followed by the horizontal line and the four outer lines for defining the edges of the painting area. There were eight major lines, two diagonals, the vertical, the horizontal, and four bordering lines. The first two of the eight major lines were the diagonal lines drawn from one corner of the canvas to its diagonal opposite. These two lines facilitated the placing of the vertical and horizontal. To draw these lines one needed a chalked marking string. A simple chalk line could be obtained by rubbing a length of string with chalk powder between the hands. The chalk line mostly used was a string passed through a powder bag. This bag would be made of leather or cloth, and the marking powder was often a mixture of ochre and charcoal. Lines were made by positioning and snapping the string against the canvas. These lines were called dry lines. When using a chalk line with a stick, one could use both hands to hold the string and twang it to create the line. One fastened the string to the end of the stick, so a notch needed to be incised at the end and a groove around the circumference of the stick. To fasten the string to the stick, the the string should be pulled through the notched end and then wrapped and tied around the shaft within the groove. There is much more information I could give here, but it would be better placed in a book about tanker painting. Suffice it to say that I took copious notes. I continued candle making, yak feeding and engaging with the morning and evening meditation sessions in the shrine room. There was plentiful conversation. I provided a great deal of information about Vajrayana in the Nyingma tradition. People had almost endless questions. The books available at the time were mainly academic and incomprehensible to anyone apart from scholars, and it was by no means certain what benefits scholars derived from them. The atmosphere at that time was characterised by an enormous hunger for useful knowledge concerning Vajrayana. After my meeting with Akong Rinpoche, even the slightly remote Jarvis became friendly, and asked a few questions in a cordial manner. I acted as if he'd never been obnoxious and he, on his part, acted accordingly. He'd joined us in my room on my last night and I'd welcomed him to pull up a cushion. Chugyam, he opened, I was wondering whether they have nakpas in the Kagyu school. Yes, they do especially in the Drukpa Kagyu and Drigong Kagyu schools, but they have them in all branches of the Kagyu. After all, Milarepa and his disciple Rechungpa were not monastics. There were other non-monastic disciples of Milarepa too. Nienzong Tongrepa, repa, repa Kira Ursebanrepa, Drigom Drigomrepa. And Rapa Sangye Cub. There were others too, but those are the only ones I can recall. Of course, Jarvis nodded. I was forgetting about the Rapas. Can you still find Rapas in India? Yes, there are a wonderful gathering of them at Tashi Jong, who are associated with Kamtrul Rinpoche. There, they're called the Togdens and they practice incredibly rigorous psychophysical yogas. Jarvis wanted to know more, and so I commenced to tell him what I knew. It was the 8th Kamtral Rinpoche who established a community for the preservation of Vajrayana for the Drukpa Kagyu Togdans, monastics and lay people, who had followed him into exile from Kham. They all worked together to build Kampagar Gompa to replicate what they had left behind in Tibet. Every spring they perform Garcham to celebrate the birth of Padmasambhava. This Vajrayana dance was first performed in Tibet 300 years ago. The Kantral Rimpoche is a master of Garcham. What do these dances look like? asked Jan. Well, the dancers are dressed in brocade robes and they move according to an intricate yet dramatically dauntless choreography. It's alternately wild and stately. Hard to describe really, but the dancers swirl, often spinning around on one leg with the other raised. It is Mahayoga meditation in movement manifesting visualisation as dance. "'Are these dances ever performed by women?' asked Jan. "'Yes, although it would be rather more rarely seen. Kandro Tenzin Drolka was skilled in Garcham.' Jan inquired, so I gave her some detail. Kandro Tenzin Drolka had spent some time at Tashijong before she married Nakpa Yeshe Dorje, and she had learned Garcham from one of the Togdens there. There were a group of amazing Togdans. Togden Chule, Togden Zopa, Togden Tachog, Togden Ajam and Togden Atrin. Later, Togden Semdor and Togden Achu were able to escape and join Kamchal Rinpoche. Togden Chule was known as Togden Rinpoche, as he is the main meditation teacher in Tashi Jong. Khandro Tenzin Drolka studied with Togden Artrin ah for a time, because although he was ostensibly Drukpa Kagyu, he was mainly Nyingma Zogchen in terms of practice. She told me that in Tibet he'd been in solitary retreat for six years. But at that point, he'd felt that his practice had become slow and turgid. He told Kandro Tenzin that he felt his practice had turned him into a serene vegetable. That's very funny, laughed Kate. It sounds almost un-Tibetan. <coughs> oh, Togden Artrin had a fine sense of humour according to Kandro Tenzin and a way of expressing himself that was quite individual. Anyhow, Togden Artrin asked Kamtrol Rinpoche whether it might help him to practice in a more rugged, inhospitable place, perhaps even a frightening place. Kamtrol Rinpoche had agreed and given directions to a specific location. Having arrived, Togden Artrin found a large cave into which the sun never shone in the evening a flock of noisy pigeons flapped around inside defecating so he'd get splattered with pigeon excrement wild laughter ensued at this point and i had to wait for the gathering to calm down i wondered what it was about people that made defecation such an amusing topic anyhow i continued Togden Artrin placed a container to collect the water trickling down the rock face, but when he drank the water it tasted vile. He then realised the water was partly pigeon's urine. Again, the gathering found this highly amusing, and I began to feel awkward about the account. I had not meant to amuse people, and although I enjoyed being entertaining and telling jokes, I found myself feeling that I would rather not be seen as someone who made these stories comical. So, I resumed, the cave was wet and noisy. It was frightening at night because of the strange sounds that seemed to erupt out of nowhere. These sounds were not sounds made by pigeons, but by other creatures he could not see. He found that his former tranquility had vanished entirely and was perplexed as to how he should proceed. He concluded that whatever he'd practised in the past was of little use. So he tried to cultivate greater calm by not surrendering, surrendering to distraction within any of the sense fields. He took all phenomena as equal and in this mode he remained in that cave for a further six years. After that, nothing affected him, and whatever occurred, he never left the state of Rigpa. So there really are yogis just like Milarepa today. Jarvis beamed. Certainly, and others with the same realization who've endured fewer austerities, such as Kandra Tenzin She's very much a zogchen yogini. Jarvis then asked, did Khandro Tenzin practice the six yogas of Naropa? Yes, and especially the physical yogas belonging to the trulkor system. So Togden Artrin was her Tsawai Lama, asked Jarvis. No, her Tsawai Lama is Kama Gyalpo Rinpoche. He's one of the greatest living Tsalung Karma Mudra masters, but I've not met him. Jarvis proceeded to get highly technical at that point and ask all manner of questions. Although fascinating, I started feeling concerned that the others were being left out of the conversation. I therefore excused myself on the pretext that I needed to pay a visit to the toilet. I remained away just long enough to allow another stream of conversation to take over and strolled back to my room. By the time I returned, they were talking about Chugyam Trungpa We were talking about the fact that you both have the name Chugyam. Is there some connection? asked Kate. No, not apart from the fact that I have a great deal of respect for Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He's really the first lama to communicate in contemporary English and I find that an enormous inspiration. Our names however are not exactly the same. Trungpa Rinpoche's name is a contraction of Chökyi gyamso and mine is a contraction of Chöying Ying Chökyi Gyamtsu means ocean of Dharma, and Ying Gyamtsu means ocean of space or oceanic Chüying. Ying, inquired Jan. That's Dharmadhatu in Sanskrit. You speak Tibetan then? No, I wish I did. I know the technical language of Vajrayana to a certain degree, but I can't string it into a sentence. I can only say thank you very much indeed. I'm going to town or wish people sit in comfort when I'm leaving and other social pleasantries. And so we moved through ideas until they all drifted off to bed. It had been an extremely pleasant last evening and I was happy that Jarvis had been there. It fulfilled something important in my mind. It was possible for human beings to be friends and to accept each other as equally valuable. The warm glow of such comradeship was the ideal mood in which to go to sleep on the final night at Samy Ling. So I packed my robes away. Tomorrow I'd be back in my civvies again, ready to hit the road. I'd got into bed and just turned out the light when Jan appeared in my room, slipped out of her dress and climbed into bed. In as relaxed a manner as I was capable, I said, Jan, I'd be extremely happy about this under other circumstances, but I'm not single, you know. That's a shame, but I'm only looking for a cuddle. A woman needs that from time to time. Nothing else has to happen. It's not a life or death decision, you know. What was I going to say to that? It took a moment or two, but finally I said, this is completely outside my sense of what's possible, but I'll take your word for it and I wouldn't like to be ungentlemanly. Nothing more was said. She spooned up behind me and went to sleep almost immediately, as far as I could tell by her rate of breathing. I, on the other hand, lay awake for something close to eternity. It may have been 20 minutes, but it was 20 minutes crammed with concept, I had a range of ideas and sensations that were difficult to reconcile. I knew that in some way I could have found myself teetering for a microsecond on a pivotal molecule of precariousness. I was a sixteenth of an inch from a torrid departure from my understandable continuum. That thought was highly unwelcome in my mind It left me wondering about my relationship to Debt. I knew, in some way, that I should have asked Jan to return to her room. My failure to do so reflected the nature of my relationship with Debt. I was loyal to Debt. That much was obvious by my pointing out I was not single. It was also obvious by my stated intention of going to sleep. However, I did not feel innocent, and it was evident to me that any sense of my being in love with debt had ceased to be viable, and had not been viable for some time. How would I have acted if I was with Lindy Dale? I knew immediately. Jan would have had to have returned to her room. That could have been a ghastly revelation for anyone in a relationship, but somehow it was merely a stark fact of my existence. I'd already offered to spare debt my irritating association and she'd performed a backwards flip. I wouldn't have been bereft by any means if we parted on that day. I was fond of debt, but love? No, that had gone. That had been squashed out of me. I remembered the words of Dudjam Rimshay. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. When I woke, Jan was gone. I breathed a sigh of relief as waking up next to Jan would have been somewhat awkward. At breakfast, Jan was as cheery and bright as ever. and it was as if I'd dreamed the whole thing. Then she said, you know, you really are the perfect old fashioned gentleman. You and Jarvis have back to front ages. He's 42 and you're 22, but he's a teenager and you're an adult and I'm nearly old enough to be your mother. I raised my eyebrows and made a movement with my right hand that requested her age. A few years or so older than Jarvis. You surprise me, I said in genuine surprise. I thought you were in your early thirties. There's no end to your gallantry, is there? Jan laughed. But hush now, we have the others joining us. Kate, Dot, and Georgina joined us, and we plunged back into the stream of conversation that had continued almost unabated since I arrived. I was just telling Kate, grinned Georgina, that Chugyam reminds me of Adam Adamant. Adam Adamant? Jan queried. He was a character on television back in about '66, '67 on the BBC. Kate responded. He was some kind of adventurous hero who was supposed to have been born in 1867 but got put into some kind of hibernation and got revived in 1966. It was a fun show, a sort of comedy thriller. It was a satire about the 60s because the 60s are seen through the eyes of an honourable Victorian gentleman. He had an imposing name too, added Kate, something like Adam Cluelin de Vere Adamant. I sat faintly bewildered as I'd never seen the series. In those years I'd been fairly free of television and most of my time had been absorbed with savage cabbage. What's the story with Adam Llewellyn de Vere Adamant? It seems I missed something on television after all. He's a swashbuckling Victorian hero, said Georgina, who I think, oh yes, he was this officer in the army listed missing presumed killed in 1902. Yeah, my father was born, I added. Whoa, he was old then when you were born, I mean. So maybe that accounts for it. Anyhow, he has to rescue his kidnapped fiance. What's her name? Louise, answered Kate. Yeah, Louise. So he's lured into a trap, captured and frozen in a block of ice by his arch-enemy, who's called The Face, because he wears a leather mask all the time and speaks in this eerie whisper. The Face gives Adam adamant a last request. And so he asks to see Louise. Yeah, then he makes this really nasty discovery, Kate chipped in. In his last moment before he's frozen, he discovers that Louise was never really kidnapped. She's been working for the face all the time. So Adam Adamant gets found in 1966 when a building's being demolished. He's revived and gets out of hospital, but collapses somewhere in London where he gets rescued by this girl Georgina. I was about 13 then and always liked that she was called Georgina. Sounds like a ripping yarn. I enjoy that kind of thing and I can almost see myself being like this gentleman. Not that I think I'm a hero or anything, but Maybe I like that archaic style of being honourable. Maybe I got that from my father. Now there's a thought. I never thought I'd find myself saying something like that. So, sorry, I interrupted your flow. No, that just makes it more interesting that we were talking about it. And so, anyway, although Georgina's a typical 60s hippie, Adam Adamant was her childhood hero and she read all about his late 1800s adventures. So when Adam Adamant starts in on crime detection, she gets in on all his cases. He tries to stop her for her own protection, but she always sails in at the last moment to help. Better and better. A hippie heroine, I laughed. I love this story. So, right, Adam Adamant's this brilliant sw- swordsman with this sword that comes out of a walking stick and he's also a boxer and expert in judo and karate so he can just about do anything. So anyhow, Georgina's threatened after seeing her grandfather being murdered by the mafia and thereafter her and Adam Adamant saves her. There's also this mystery because no one knows where his money comes from or how he rebuilds his old home on top of this multi-storey car park in London. The wild part is how he gets into his house in this secret lift that's hidden by a sliding wall. So, apart from my being somehow quaint, what's the similarity? Well, when the face captures him, Louise, who betrayed him, tells him, You're so clever, but oh, so vulnerable. He has this Victorian naivety, you see, and that reminds us of you. I mean, I can't imagine any other man being coaxed into wearing Dot's knickers. Yes, you've got me there. Maybe that's just because I don't enjoy having limitations. Although I wouldn't argue about my naivety, I think that's probably accurate. Jan said nothing during the Adam Adamant exchange, but smiled occasionally and eventually said to me almost in a whisper, "You'll even own up to naivety then that's impressive." Jan evidently didn't expect an answer, so I simply smiled. And gave a slight shrug of the shoulders. Once breakfast was over I discovered that Kate was headed back to Liverpool that day and so I offered her a lift. She was to have hitched from Sammy Ling and I knew that would be difficult until she got to Lockerbie. Kate was evidently pleased with the prospect because more often than not people ended up walking most of the way to Lockerbie. The locals weren't that enthusiastic about picking up hitchhikers. Do you have to leave soon, she asked. Yes, well, I don't have to head out immediately, but I need to get back to Bristol before it gets too late. I don't like driving when I'm overtired. Almost ended up dead doing that in Germany when I was 16. Right, of course, but... I was wondering, if you don't need to be back in Bristol for a day or so, I'd like to introduce you to my friends Amy and Atlas in Liverpool. Atlas, I queried, as in Charles. No, but I can fill you in on that later. They're really interesting people and I think you'd really like them. They're really different and outside the establishment thing. I've known them for about five years and they've been really good friends. They don't lay any conventional conservative trips on you and they live life like art. They sound like my friends in Bristol. The world needs more people like that and I'm always happy to meet open-minded people. Right, they're completely open-minded and free. You'll really get on with them well and they'll really like you too. What could I say? Well, I could go back to Bristol a day or two later, but I'd have to make a few telephone calls. Then we don't need to head out until just before lunch, Kate smiled. I'd like to say goodbye to a few people and see the yaks one last time. Sorry, I forgot. I mean the yak and the dree. And so it was arranged. A leisurely departure seemed most welcome to me. I went upstairs and knocked on Jan's door. She opened the door and beckoned me to come in. Just come to say goodbye, I said, and to give you my address. Jan smiled a little sadly, I thought, and said, I think I'd better not take your address. I don't think it would be sensible. I wasn't meaning i started but jan interrupted no of course not jan demurred but i interrupted it's just that i've come to regard you as a good friend yes jan replied and that's just what we are but i'm not sure i trust myself as much as you trust yourself if you understand yes I do. You really are a most remarkable person. I answered in some kind of strange daze or purple haze. Well, maybe we'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, Jan broke in with the words of the song. But I'm sure we'll meet again one sunny day, I completed the line. Yes maybe we will but before you leave i'd like to give you a little advice if you will hear it keep smiling through i'm sure you will laughed Jan. but seriously certainly i smiled one can't get enough advice if it's kindly and intelligently given as i'm certain it is yes it is you're going to be taking kate back to liverpool i hear I nodded in the affirmative and Jan continued, Kate has spoken to me about her two friends, Amy and Atlas. They share a house with her in Liverpool. I don't know exactly how to put this, but I'm not sure they're your kind of people exactly. I've got no more to say than that because I may be entirely wrong, but take care, keep your eyes wide open and remember to leave as soon as you want to leave. I thanked Jan for her advice. I told her that I'd not forget what she'd said and suddenly wished she'd given her advice before I'd agreed to go to Liverpool. But what could happen beyond my finding these Amy and Atlas people uninteresting? They could turn out to be like the hippie cannibals in Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend. That was the last time I ever saw Jan. Goodbye forever.